I just praise the Lord. And that I worship a Savior that is for me. He is for me. Not against me. And I'm telling you, as I look out and see you this morning, that takes away a lot of the nerves. I'm he is for me. He does not want to humiliate me. Take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. We're going to be uh, looking at verses 22 through, through 33 this morning. Matthew chapter 14, uh, verse 22 through 33. Let's stand in honor of reading the Word of God this morning as we prepare to study it and apply it to our lives. <clears throat> the most dangerous thing you can do is to preach a familiar passage. Because when you preach a familiar passage, people tend to say, well, I've heard this already. I want you to hear it afresh this morning. The truth is there. It's still the same. But let's read. You follow along as out. Immediately, disciples get into the boat and go before him to her side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got in the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. So Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let's pray. Truly, you are the Son of God. Clearly, I believe every word of it. On the water. Calming the sea. Calling Peter out. Every word of it is true. By the power of your Holy Spirit, now impart the meaning of this to our hearts that we may be encouraged and leave here worshiping you as the Son of God. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Now as you're being seated, just a warning, just a warning, I may have to switch microphones. I've heard it. Go ahead, cut out. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and do it. Um, this is always fun, you know. Um, switching mics right before you get started preaching. But I'd rather you hear me than not hear me. And so this, we're going to do this. I don't have a joke. If I had a joke, I'd, I'd be a good time to tell one. But I don't have a joke. 
things become more difficult when you're doing them in front of about 300 people. Just so you know. But it sounds like that one's working and it's not tickling my ear or my cheek and not cutting out. So this will be worth changing. So now I'm always cautious about sermon titles. And let me tell you why. Because I normally cannot come up with a good one. So I just normally leave them off. But today, there's a sermon title. And the title is From Nazareth to Gennesaret. And the reason why I've titled the message this way, because I believe it is God's will for you as you follow Christ. I believe it's His will for you to be constantly moving from areas of unbelief and to greater faith in Christ as the Son of God. Let me say it again. I believe it's God's will for you to be moving from areas of unbelief in your life into greater faith in Christ as the Son of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-10 through 10 is a very, very familiar passage for us. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast... For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand in order that we would walk in them. God's prepared work for us to do beforehand to accomplish for his purpose in Christ Jesus. There are good works for us to do. We are saved by grace through faith, but we are God's workmanship. He has prepared things for us to accomplish for His glory. There's good work for us to do in killing sin. There's good work for us to do in parenting. There's good work for us to do in our marriages. There's good work for us to do in our family relationships. There's good work for us to do in our careers. There's good work to do in our church. There's good work to do in our communities. And all this good work God has prepared beforehand in order for the gospel to have his intended effect, its intended effect in our lives, in the lives of our family, in the lives of our community, and the lives of people all around the globe. We follow Jesus. And through faith in Jesus, he has recreated us to accomplish great things for our good and his glory. Now, as his followers, we have the comfort of knowing that he is working in our lives to equip us for those good works that he has prepared beforehand for us to accomplish. He doesn't just say, hey, there are things for you to accomplish, now go do them. No, there are things that he desires for us to accomplish, and he is constantly working, sovereignly working in our lives to empower us to accomplish those things. Jesus equips us by moving us from the areas of unbelief to a greater faith in him. And I believe we see that in this passage. Look back at chapter 13. Flip back to chapter 13. Look at verse 53 in chapter 13. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. 
But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. They did not, he did not do mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now flip back to chapter 14. Flip back to chapter 14. Go to verse 34 in chapter 14. Verse 34 in chapter 14. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men that then when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. You see the difference between Nazareth and Gennesaret? Nazareth, nothing is done. Gennesaret, if we can just touch the man, if I can just get up close enough to him that I can just reach out and just touch the hem of his garment, I can be made well. You see the difference between Nazareth, a place of unbelief, to Gennesaret, a place of mighty faith. And in between these two towns, we have two miracles. The first miracle is Jesus feeding the 5,000. 5,000 men, probably 20 to 25,000 once, once you count women and children and the families that were there. So Jesus is doing a mighty work in feeding the 5,000. And then we get to our text beginning in verse 22. And what I believe God is telling us this morning through the context of this passage of Scripture and through the word of the Lord this morning is that God will not accomplish anything lasting in us or through us without first working in us a greater faith in Him. And so in this passage, we're going to see three things that Jesus did to move His disciples into a greater place of faith in Him as the Son of God. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. So, number one, Jesus sent His disciples into an impending storm. Look back at verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples. The word there is compelling the disciples. It's almost as if he's forcing the disciples to get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Now, John chapter 6 gives us a little bit of context of why Jesus is trying to get them out of the scene. In John chapter 6, Jesus has fed the the multitude. In John chapter 6, they're trying to make him king, and Jesus wants his disciples to hear none of this. And so scholars believe that Jesus is pushing them into the boat so that Jesus can move out the crowds, quiet the crowds, and stop all this earthly king talk. And so Jesus is getting them in the boat, and he is putting them out to sea. And I want you to understand, he's putting them out to sea as the all-knowing God, knowing that the storm is on the horizon. He's sending them out into an impending storm. Now I want to tell you, that flies in the face of a lot of theology that we hear on TV nowadays. A lot of theology on TV that you hear nowadays, Jesus would never send you into an impending storm. Jesus would never allow that you to go that. Because all Jesus for those is for those people, Jesus is just like a candy store. You just go and get the sweet things. There are no vegetables 
in their theology of Jesus. But I want to tell you, there's vegetables in, the theo- in biblical theology. Jesus will send you into an impending storm. That's exactly what he did to his disciples. And I want to tell you, storms have a way of broadening our understanding of who God is. Storms have a way of broadening our understanding of who God is. They reveal what we really believe about God. Our finite minds struggle to comprehend an infinite God. We often are unable to see what God is up to because our view of God is so limited. It's just like a horse with blinders on. And when God's operating out here and we're right here, we just can't see what God is up to. And it causes us to just question him. And it causes what we really believe about God to kind of rise up to the surface. Ways that we are limited in our understanding of God. We see it in the, in the text this morning. We see the naturalism of Nazareth. He's just Joseph and Mary's boy. Is not this guy just a carpenter's son? You see the naturalism there? He can't be God. He's just a man. It's the naturalism of Nazareth. It's the unconfessed sin of Herod. Up in the beginning of chapter 14, uh, Herod just dismisses Jesus as being John John the Baptist raised from the dead. Because Herod had had, uh, John the Baptist um, had his head chopped off. I was trying to think of a nicer way of saying that, but there's really only one way to say that. He just had it cut off. And he was tempted and fell into that temptation to kill John John the Baptist through uh, a a, a sticky situation with a woman. So we're limited in our understanding of God because of the naturalism of Nazareth, the unconfessed sin of Herod, the idolatry of the crowd. What's the crowd looking for? Give us a king. We're tired of the Romans. Give us a political figure that we can put into office. Hear me this. Hear me now. Give us a political figure that we can put into office and put our faith and trust in and let it be a man. We don't need a God man. We just need a man in the office that will do what we want him to That's the idolatry of the crowd. And not even the spiritualism of the disciples is enough. You see, he's limited. He comes out to them on the water. And what's their first instinct? It's a ghost. It's a ghost. You see, faith is so much better than unbelief. Faith moves us toward boldness when when unbelief moves us toward fear. Faith drives our hearts to share about Jesus with other people. When unbelief causes us to shrink back and stay quiet, faith grows our affection for the things of God, while unbelief moves us toward an unloving apathy. We just don't care, really. I mean, he's out there, but you know, he's kind of unknowable. Faith moves us to take God-ordained risk, while unbelief causes us just to sit tight and not move. God, I can't do that. I'm just too scared to do that. God, what if, what if, what if? There's a lion outside. I can't do that right now. And when God, but when God sends us to an impending storm, it has a way of revealing our true theology. See, everyone has a theology. Even the people who do not confess Jesus Christ as Lord has a theology. Their theology is experientially based. And there are several statements about who Jesus is in this passage. But the only one that really mattered was what Jesus said at the end. It's what the disciples declared about Jesus at the end. The only one that really matters. And Jesus says something pretty amazing about himself in this passage. We're going to see it here in a minute. It's amazing to me that some people look around and see absolutely no evidence of God. 
just yesterday, I believe it was, may have been Friday afternoon, I turned on the History Channel, and there was a man using a lot of Genesis talk, a lot of Genesis talk, created in the image of, and so I perked up and listened. This man really believes, and I'm not mocking the man, this, this is serious. This man really believes that we were created in the image of aliens. And that aliens came and, and um, landed on our planet. And they interbred with snakes. And that's where we get the serpent, the serpent picture in Genesis. And a lot of this biblical theology stuff is based on aliens. Please tell me I'm not the only one in this room who thinks that's absurd. It's crazy that someone would rather believe in an alien than believe in an all-loving, all-caring God who would love us enough in spite of us to come down, live as a man, die in our place, so that when he rose again, we would have death, we would have victory over death, victory over hell, and we get to spend eternity in a place of lasting joy of joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. A place where there's pleasures in heaven that we haven't even experienced yet. And God's given us this opportunity to come and experience that. And there's some guy on the History Channel trying to sound smart going, yeah, it's the aliens. When the disciples were struggling in the storm, they really weren't that much different, though, than the people in Nazareth. They really just weren't that much different. Isn't that kind of like us when the storm hits? When everything, what we thought was going to happen, didn't happen, and the wind has set in, and it's blowing against us. That's really when unbelief rises in our hearts. Which brings us to the next thing that Jesus did. Jesus did not leave his disciples to suffer alone in the storm. Look back at verse 25. He didn't leave them alone. It says, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. It's an alien. <laughs> and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Verse 24 says, they were a long way off. It says they were beaten by the waves. It says the wind was against them. And, and this is... Uh, scholars believe this is more like a windstorm, not a thunderstorm. You would see an impending thunderstorm coming in, but the, uh, the way the, the geography is of the land, um, the, the boat would sail out and a windstorm could just come rushing in off the mountains really fast and would blow against the wind. And it wouldn't matter how hard you were rowing, it would take you in the opposite direction of where you were going. And scholars believe this is the type of windstorm that they were facing. Not thunder, not lightning, not rain, but they were supposed to go in one direction and all of a sudden everything is blowing against them to send them in the wrong Direction. It's a windstorm. It's against them. They were beaten by the waves. In as much as 8 to 12 hours, they had only traveled about 3 or 4 miles. And when you read the text here and in the other passages that include this in the Gospels, there's a sense that for a good amount of time, the rowing was productive. But then there was the onset of this windstorm. And praying up on the mountain, Jesus could see... They're struggling. I want to tell you, this is one of the most encouraging parts about this passage. He's up there praying on the mountain. 
He looks out and he sees his followers in the storm. And what does Jesus do? He stops praying and comes down to help. Now I am thankful that Jesus intercedes on my behalf. I am thankful that he is our advocate. I am thankful that Jesus is all those things. But the beautiful truth of this passage is Jesus goes out to them. He meets their needs by going out to them into the storm. Jesus is not operating outside of creation. Jesus became a human being. And as a created being in human form, Jesus comes to the aid of his disciples in a supernatural demonstration of his sovereign control over creation. Listen to this. He's creator in creation with complete control over all that he created. Complete control over all that he created. And how did he come to them? He walked on the water. On the water. Every step of Jesus toward his disciples was a proclamation of him as Lord over all of creation. Now, would you, I am not good at science. I was good at one thing, and that was art. And I was an art teacher. And then God called me to go to seminary, and I was okay at that, but, but I'm good at one thing, and that's art. So I'm, I'm gonna, for the scientists in the room, I'm going to mess this up, okay? So just forgive me. But I want you to understand the power of Jesus Christ as he was stepping on a liquid, and it was becoming solid enough to support it. It doesn't say he was floating across the water. It says he was on the water. He's walking on the water and every step that Jesus is taking toward his disciples is saying I am Lord over all creation stop looking at your circumstances stop looking at what you're experiencing stop looking at what seems so real to you I am the one who created all things I am Lord over all creation and every step I take toward you is proof of that every step I take toward you is proof of that But just like us, the disciples, they don't get it. Now I want you to think about what the disciples have recently experienced. Jesus, the sovereign creative chef in the afternoon by the, and fed 20,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish, right? The sovereign chef, or just multiplying it, I mean, he's better than dominoes, man. He's kicking it out to the point that there's 12 baskets left over. By the way, 12 disciples... Probably when they kicked out in the boat, they probably had those leftover baskets with them. It's very possible that they had those leftover baskets with them and they're rowing out into the lake. And Jesus is good, man. We had no food. There's no way we could feed all these people. And now all these people are fed. And look, we even have food. And they're out there and then the storm hits and they struggle. And when the storm hits, they forget that they have a guy that can handle their situation. And instead of calling out for Jesus, they just keep struggling. And the thing about it is they know a guy who can handle this. They have a guy who can handle this. They know a guy. I heard that a lot in New Jersey. I know a guy who can do that for you. You know, they know a guy. 
Have you heard that phrase before? Hey, I know a guy. Your fridge is down. Hey, I know a guy. Your car broke down. Hey, I know a guy. Can you hear me? The central air goes out. Hey, I know a guy. He'll be right over. Run out of food. Hey, they knew a guy. Caught in a storm. Oh, no. What do we do? What do we do? You see the double-mindedness of that? And we would sit here and laugh about them and say, look at those foolish disciples. Man, Jesus just did that. If it were me, I would never do that. And you'll leave a worship service and be on cloud nine. And before you can get home, you've gotten a, cell, you've gotten a call on your cell phone or a text or somebody's posted something on Facebook. And excuse me for saying it this way. I don't know how to say it any other way. But you're all booger-lipped about it. Just all poked out about it. Just mad. How dare they say that about me? Now you just experienced worship with church, in church, experiencing the power of the presence of God let out among his people and praise and worshiping, hearing the word of God, and before you can get home, you're just, mm. we're just like the disciples, just like them. But don't let unbelief blind your eyes and keep you from seeing what God is up to. Don't do that. Don't be like them. When you are in the storm, Jesus is with you. He's right there on the water with you. And he gives us some encouraging words in verse 27. Look down at them. He says, but immediately Jesus... Verse 27. Sorry, I looked at my watch. That's what I did. Oh, no, what time is it? Good, I got plenty of time. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. What is his encouragement? He tells them, he speaks to them and tells them some things. He says, take heart, be a good courage. It is I, do not be afraid. Now, um, I struggle with English. Tracy's over there saying, yes, Lord, help him, okay? Uh, it's not my second language, but I talk like it is often. Um, but in the text, it says, it is I. But if you go back to the original language, the construction there, if it was going to say, it is I, it would say it a little bit different. But you go back to the original language, and it's an ego a me saying. It's an ego a me saying. If you look at it literally, it's, it is, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. Take heart, I am, be not afraid. Take heart, I am, be not afraid. Now that doesn't make sense unless you remember back to Exodus chapter 3 around verse 14. God is speaking uh, through a burning bush that's not being consumed by fire, but it looks like the bush is on fire. And he's talking with Moses. And Moses says, when I go back to the children of Israel, who should I tell them is sending me? And what does God in the burning bush say? He says, I am who I am is sending you. It's the I am. Jesus is invoking the name of God for himself in this passage. He says, take heart, I am is on the water. I am is on the water. 
The ever-present, omniscient, omnipotent God. Praise the Lord. He is on the water. He's not in the water. He's not under the water. He's not up on a mountaintop praying for you. Friend, if you're in a storm right now, I am is on the water. And that should encourage you. Excuse me if I'm getting loud, but I can't help it. Because I've seen some times in my life where I just wanted to give up and walk away. Some pretty recently. And all I could think about was, God, are you real? in spite of all the miracles that I'd seen him do in my life. God, are you real? Are you really there? And it's so easy to forget that I am is on the water. He's right there with you. He's not some foreign deity outside of creation. He hasn't spun the top and stepped back and let the world and all of creation spin. He is still actively involved in your life. Friend, don't give up this morning. Please don't stop. Keep going. Don't stop because I am is on the water. He says, I am the bread of life in John chapter 6. He says, I am the light of the world in chapter 8. He says, I am the good shepherd. He says, I am the resurrection of, I am the resurrection of life in John chapter 11. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. And he stands before the boat and says, Don't be afraid. I am. Don't be afraid. I am. Take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. And then Jesus, and then Peter says, Lord, if it really is you, we love Peter, right? <laughs> Lord, if it really is you, tell me to come to you. Now, that's exactly opposite of what I would do. I would say, Lord, if it really is do, if it really is you, tell John to come to you. That's what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> but he says, Lord, if it really is you, bid me come to you and I'll, and I'll come. And Jesus, said, and Jesus said this one word. He said, come. Now, I want you to understand something. This is really where we are in this parable. I really do think. Not parable, I'm sorry, I said the wrong word. This is where we are in this historical, actual event that happened. Sorry, I didn't mean to say parable. This is where we are. He doesn't calm the storm and invite you to come to him. He doesn't calm the storm and then say, hey, come on, the water's fine. He doesn't. When did he call Peter out of the boat in the midst of the storm? He called him to step out of the boat in the middle of the storm. Four miles from land. And so the question is, how far did Peter walk? Did Peter get, you know, was Jesus ten yards off the boat and he made it nine and a half? Was Jesus right there at the boat and Peter made it two steps? I know exactly how far Peter walked. Peter walked exactly how far his faith in Jesus as the Son of God carried him. Did you hear me? He lasted as long as his faith kept him. But what does the text tell us? Verse 30, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. He was distracted by the surroundings. Isn't that us? Son of God. As bid you come, you start walking, and you're walking out there, and distraction set in, and this is where we end up with our last point. Jesus was right there to rescue Peter when he fell.
He was right there to rescue Peter when he fell. Now, I want you to understand something. Jesus did not cause Peter to fail, but he did call him out of the boat. You hear what I'm saying? He did not cause Peter to fail, but he did call him out of the boat. He called him out of the boat into a dangerous situation where failure was very possible. Very possible. But the beautiful thing is that when Peter failed, Jesus was right there. Have you ever experienced a beginning that was much better than the ending? Have you ever experienced a beginning that was much better than the ending? I'm just not talking about a movie. I'm talking about life. Have you started off well, right in the middle of God's will, yet to finish feeling like you're completely outside of it? Have you ever been in a relationship like that? A friendship where, man, this friendship is helping me become more like Jesus, and before you know it, it's causing the opposite effect. How about your marriage? Did your marriage start off really well, and everything's going great, and then all of a sudden, your eyes get off of Jesus, you get distracted by your surroundings, and you're sunk, and you don't know what to do. How about a job? How about a serving some way in the church? It happens, man. You start serving on fire and then someone says something that they shouldn't. They're a little bit critical or they're a little bit mean in how they talk to you and you're like, that's it. I'm done. Have you ever been there? You begin well, but then you look around. You've taken your eyes off Jesus for just a split second and for a moment, unbelief crept in and guess what happens? You sink. Three quick ways we lose our focus on Jesus and open the door to unbelief when we start paying attention to other people's disobedience, especially when it's hurting you. One of the ways I take my eyes on Jesus is, but look what they're doing. Look what they're doing. Look what they're doing. And you know what Jesus says? Take the log out of your own eye first. Don't stop looking at what they're doing. Ways we lose our focus on Jesus and open the door to unbelief is we pay attention to other people's success, especially when it's at our expense. Is this not our culture right now? Is this not our culture right now? They're the bad guy because they've stepped on your back to get there, and the focus becomes no longer on what you can do to improve your situation. The fault is always somebody else. When Peter... When Jesus grabbed Peter and pulled him up, and he said, oh, you have a little faith. Why did you doubt? Peter could have said, well, did the the wind. Did you see what the wind was doing to me, Jesus? The waves, man, that thing was higher than me, and it was getting ready to crash on me. What, what, what? You don't see Peter giving excuses. What you see Peter doing is hanging on to Jesus. See, we must not look around. We have only one who is worthy of our gaze, and his name is Jesus. He is the I am, and I am is on the water. The good news is God is big enough to use our failure to strengthen our faith. He uses, often uses our failure to strengthen our faith. Look back at verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And then Jesus immediately responded. The ESV says, took hold of him. The NIV says, caught him. It's almost as if he's starting to sing and Jesus catches him before his head goes under. He's either taking hold of him or catching him. But 
whatever is going on there, Jesus has a hold of Peter and he's not sinking anymore. The failure is over with. Jesus has a hold of him. You and I may fail, but the one who has called us out on the water is waiting to pick us up out of the water when we take our eyes off him and, and start to fail. He's right there to pick us up. Amen? Now, I kind of got a picture of this, and Tracy will remember this. I'm not sure if anybody else in the room was there. But it was a young married Sunday school class pool party. And we learned a lesson at this pool party. And the lesson was, it's okay to pray with your eyes open when you have small kids around a swimming pool. It's okay to pray with your eyes open when you have small kids around the swimming pool. Because we circled up, and it was, you know, we're praying for our food, you know, and I'm probably praying a little bit too long. And then all of a sudden we hear, Skusploosh! And all of a sudden the eyes were open, and it's over to the swimming pool, and I'm telling you, I saw a father with his hand on his baby pulling him out of the water. And there was no, ooh, let's see how many times he bobs up and down before we pull him out. There was nothing like that. There was not a, ooh, let's see if his uh, natural instincts kick in and if he turns belly up like some babies will do. You get? There was no, it was the baby's in the water, we got to get him out before he drowns. I'm telling you, it's that same intensity that Jesus Christ comes to us when we fall and we sink. It's William is in the water, we got to get him out. There's no bobbing up and down. There's no waiting to see if he can see, there's no waiting to see if I can swim on my own or if you can swim on your own. When you have failed him and you call out, Lord save me, the moment you call out, he's reaching down to catch you. Amen. Man, that's encouraging. For someone who fails a lot, I'm telling you, that's really encouraging. When I began trusting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, you know what the prayer I prayed was? Lord save me. But you know what I had to pray yesterday? When I was examining my heart, praying for this message and this morning, and God was revealing the wickedness of my heart, you know what prayer I prayed? Lord, save me. The same prayer that gets you into the kingdom is the same words that sustain you as you're walking with Jesus. You trip and fall, Lord, save me, and he's there to pick you up. You get distracted by the circumstance of life and and all of a sudden you're sunk and you're going in the wrong direction. Lord, save me! And he's right there immediately to pick you up. I want to tell you, when he gets a hold of you, he will not let go of you. Your husband may have left, but he won't. Your dad may have walked out the door, but Jesus never will. Hey, you may be the one that's walked out the door. Friend, let me tell you, if you call out, Lord, save me right now, he will lift you up. And I want to tell you something. It's been my experience, and I believe the scripture is bearing witness to this, from Nazareth to Gennesaret, when God saves us, you know what it does to our faith? It strengthens it. It helps me trust Jesus more, knowing that when I fall, he's right there to pick me up. When I get distracted by the world around me, he's right there to pick me up. It strengthens my faith. Now, if you don't follow Jesus, you're like, woohoo, I get to go do whatever I want. But that's not, the, that's not what a true follower of Jesus does. 
What a true follower of Jesus does when he calls out, Lord, save me, you hold on to him as he's holding on to you, as he's caught you, he picks you up, puts you in the boat, and you go on to bigger and greater things that God has prepared for you. For someone in this room today, you've realized you're sunk. Maybe today you just want to trust Jesus for the first time and you just need to call out, Lord, save me. And if that's you for the first time today, I want to tell you, in just a moment after I pray, the music's going to play. It's going to be nice and relaxing music. I'm not threatening at all. I'm going to be down here at the front. If that's you and you just want to call out, Lord, save me. Man, I'd love to talk to you. But for others, and I'm saying that's probably most of us in this room, maybe you just need to call out for, Lord, save me for the 490th time. You get what I'm saying? How many times will you for, How many times must someone forgive someone? Seven? No, seven times. Maybe you just need to, you've been calling out, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Every day you're calling out, God, please forgive me, man. I've messed up again. And you know what? Jesus is ready to pick you up. The same Jesus that saved you the first time is the same Jesus that wants to pick you up and strengthen your faith and move you into a greater place of belief in Him. I know that's true because at the end of our story, at the end of what happened today, everybody got in the boat and what was the disciples' response? Truly you are the Son of God. Truly you are the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, for many people in this room, they have fallen and they're sunk. And they just need to call out, Lord, save me. There are people in this room that's been through the storm and they're on the other side of it and they've seen how you picked them up out of the water and their faith is strong. Lord, I pray when the next storm hits that they won't be calling out to you as a ghost or as something foreign or something they don't know, God, that they will call out, Lord, save me. Lord, if there's someone in this room this morning that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, would you call out to them, come, and I pray that they would respond, Lord, save me. Lord, we want to see you lifted up today as the one who saves because truly you are the Son of God. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.